Hi, everybody, and welcome to this edition of the Taking Control of Your Diabetes podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Jeremy Pettis, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Steve Edelman. And if you are just tuning in for the first time, both Steve and I are endocrinologists, uh, adult endocrinologists, University of California, San Diego. We work at the Taking Control of Your Diabetes, which Steve founded over 25 years ago. And we've both been living with type 1 diabetes ourselves since we were 15 years old. Steve, about 20 years longer or so than me, but you know, still we're both diagnosed at 15. I feel like you wanted to say something about <laughs> you know, that. Just, no, no. I was just going to say that you know we, we have so many things in common, but we're just basically 24 years apart. 24. You did the math. Okay. All well, right, I've done the years. math, and you, you, you got closer this time. Okay, good. Uh, thank you. I just think you're younger than you are. That's a good thing. <laughs> All right. So today's podcast is, is kind of loosely on clinical research, what it is, how it's performed, um, you know, what are the benefits if you want to be involved? And obviously, specifically, we're talking about clinical research and diabetes, both type 1 and type 2. And as a background, that really is my day job. Um, so I work at the university, and about 95% of my time is doing clinical research. Um, I only see patients actually twice a month, two Thursdays a month, and the rest of the time is seeing patients for, for research. So we really wanted to talk about what that kind of life is, what it looks like, um, who are the patients we see, how we recruit them, et cetera. But Steve, tell us your background in research too. Yeah, you know, 24 years ago, <laughs> I, you know, I, I have a lot of experience in clinical research, not what we call bench research where you cut up rat livers and things like that. And, um, you know, the techniques have changed a little bit. Some of them stayed the same, but the concept is the same. A lot of people have misperceptions of what being a research volunteer is. And one thing I want to accomplish on the podcast is to really explain what it is the pros and the cons about saying, I'd like to be a research subject. Because you get, people get emails, they get uh, texts, they get, their friends say, do you want to be in a clinical trial? And what things to ask, what things to look out for, and what are some of the benefits so I think, I think being involved in a clinical research project as a volunteer can be an awesome thing. Yeah. I mean, things have changed. I mean, you used to ride your pterodactyl to work and kind of hop <laughs> off of that. Now you, now you got your Tesla and things are a little bit better. Um, but yeah, you're right. You know, you could probably see this podcast and be like, okay, you know, like this topic, what are they going to talk about? It's really demystifying, you know, clinical yeah. research. Yeah. And to do so, we are joined by my other good friend and colleague, Todd May, and if I can give a brief intro of Todd and he can say hi. I've known Todd for a zillion years, it seems like. So since I started doing clinical research, I don't know, 15 years ago almost, um, Todd has always been kind of my right-hand man, clinical research coordinator, runs the show. I'm the ideas man, and Todd really kind of makes everything happen, which is another way of saying that I probably drive him crazy. Um, but Todd, say hi, introduce yourself, thanks for coming. Yeah, hey everybody, this is Todd. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> well, you know what, I'll just add, you know, you're, you're right. Um, mm -hmm. Having a clinical coordinator like Todd that runs the show, you know, you're bringing in the grants, you're sticking your head in the door here and there, hiring other folks to help do the studies because, you know, you're, you're, you're doing well, building a whole research unit. Having someone like Todd uh, is invaluable. And mm -hmm. Todd has the hands-on work, so I'm, I'm anxious to hear what he has to say, hopefully more than a few words each question. <laughs> <laughs> well, he told us before that he was going to try his best to do one-word answers, so we're going we're gonna to pull some things out of him. So, you know, I wanted to start with talking to Todd about kind of what a clinical research group is because we work at UCSD, which is a giant 
organization of thousands of employees. And within that, we're kind of our own entity and, and telling people kind of what our group consists of, because I think our group is representative of what a diabetes research group would be if you were in San Diego or Chicago or, you know, Nebraska. So right there, maybe. Okay. So yeah, um, within UCSD, like each sort of research group is their own essentially business entity, also research entity. But um, so whether you're in the vision of, you know, pulmonology or cardiology, whatever it is, like each group um, has their own staff members that work with the patients and then obviously their own PIs who get the grants. Um, and then we all just sort of like operate within ourselves um, to find our own patients and complete whatever research project we're doing. Yeah. So in our group, it's it's myself, a couple other endocrinologists that work with me, Dr. Bader, um, who's done a number of talks with us, and a couple other endocrinologists. And then there's Dodd, kind of runs the show, but we have a, like a couple nurses that you know see patients with us, a lab technician. So there's probably eight of us, I would say, in this group. And we really do work kind of completely, almost independently of UCSD. The university gives us the um, literally the place to do the research, but it's on us to, to go out and find the grants, bring in the funds, and then pay everybody. And, you know, we're going to kind of talk about this a little bit later, but I do think that's interesting because I think research is a very atypical job in that, yes, our paychecks come from UCSD, but they come as long as we can supply the funds for that. So we have to go out and find the work, get the grants. The grants come to UCSD and UCSD pays us. But guess what? As soon as we don't do any more work, sorry, there's no money for you. So like when I try to explain that to my parents or just friends, like, you know, they're like, well, don't you just get a salary and a paycheck and you just do research? Nope. You got to go out and kind of, you know, find your own money to do it. So it is a very kind of interesting symbiotic relationship between researchers and university. Well, Todd mentioned the word our own business unit. Mm -hmm. It is a business, yeah. especially to the administrators. And there's a famous phrase called the indirect costs. Mm -hmm. So that's what the university charges Jeremy when he brings in a huge grant. They take a pretty good cut just to do it at UCSD. And they they offer the building. And I don't know if who pays for the electric bill, but what, what are indirect costs these Yeah, days? that's a great question, Steve. So, you know, let's say we got a million-dollar grant, which sounds like, oh, my God, a million-dollar grant. But in clinical research, that's not uncommon, and that money doesn't go that far, to be honest. So, so you get a million-dollar grant. Usual indirect cost is like, depending on the funding source, like 50%. So that's 50% gone. Well, it's usually 50% on top of that. So another $500,000 that just goes right to the university to keep the lights on, things like that. But guess what? We don't get a computer. We have to pay for our own phone line. If you want a mailbox, you got to pay for that. Your parking pass, you got to pay for that. So it's, it's the, the indirect costs do cover you know the building and really kind of the right to work there. I think having the name of the organization and the environment um, goes a long way, but basically, these the, the research becomes a funding source for the university. And you know, I am very positive on on university research. I love the job, but these kind of like financial matters of it is something I had no idea of how this worked. You know, prior to to doing it. Any thoughts, Todd? On 
Well, I don't think anybody still knows how it works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, no, but and um, to your point, like our funding sources not only come from like one place. So there's difference between like pharmaceutical, you know, sponsors, we usually call them. Mm-hmm. They fund like these big clinical trials. People might remember like when we did like the COVID vaccines, mm-hmm. like Moderna funded like that big trial, right? And then there's places we get grants, like the government, mm-hmm. like the NIH. Um, and then there's also nonprofits like um, JDRF. They right. give us money. So well, each of those comes with like different sets of rules, yep. different sets of like money, the way we use the money, right. that sort of stuff. Yeah. And thank, thank goodness you're, you're in charge of figuring out the rules and the regs. Like a, a good example would be the islet, uh, you know, hybrid closed loop system that was a government funded study mm-hmm. and um it was one where we, it was wasn't that hard to recruit for because people wanted to try this new pump cgm combo system but i think it's maybe jeremy you can mention what what it entails you get the grant mm-hmm. it's like a 50 page document mm-hmm. and then then the whole process starts once it gets approved right and you got to recruit patients you take it yeah from there. and i think you're right and and how that process unfolds is like Todd saying, where the money's coming from. So first of all, let's say it was a pharmaceutical study and you know, well, uh, what does that mean? Like, like tandem or a company or Dexcom wanted to study some new device or whatever, and they're funding it. So they would pay the university um, based on our cost to see the patients and actually execute on the study. And in that case, they kind of come up with the protocol, what's going to be done. It's their idea. And they, more or less hire us to, to, to get the patients going and actually execute the study. But I do think that's important because a lot of times you'll hear people say there's these conspiracies that you know pharmaceutical companies have the cure and they're just like holding out on us. And I take that personally because you know for these studies to get done, it requires a lot of universities, a lot of you know like kind of dedicated people to do this research. Um, so it's kind of implying that we're falsifying data or something, which is just not happening. So there's those studies that basically come to you predetermined. Here's the study. Will you guys, you know, execute it for us? Then there's the studies that we would come up as our own independent researchers, and that might be NIH or JDRF. Hey, me, Dr. Pettis or Dr. Edelman, we have this idea. We want to study this, you know, this new drug or whatever. They'll fund, you know, you. And that is kind of like a beauty contest. You write your your application. It's always 12 pages to, to explain the, you know, science. It's 12 pages of science and about 100 pages of bureaucratic stuff. And then it goes to a review committee. This takes about six months to a year. And if they like it and they bless it enough, then you get it funded um, to do kind of your idea. So that's, you know, what I'm constantly doing as a researcher is trying to come up with ideas, writing these grants. Most of them get rejected, not just me, but most people. Um, And if you're lucky, you get a couple of these funded so you can keep doing this job that you love. But then to answer your question, Steve, once it gets funded, then starts the, oh, crap, we got to actually do this. Um, and to do that, there's all these kind of review processes internally where you have to go to what we call the, the IRB, the internal review board, which every university, every entity has where they actually look at your protocol and make it, make sure that it's safe. Yep. So every time anybody is enrolling in a study, these are, these are reviewed extensively, not necessarily to show like, is this drug going to be super effective? But with the, the, the key of, is it safe? Is this not going to be harmful to patients? And Todd, do you want to talk about the IRB maybe a little bit? Yeah, sure. that's, that's important because yeah. anybody thinking about volunteering, you should know that these protocols are scrutinized. Yeah. Do no harm. Right. 
Absolutely. So yeah, our institu institutional review board, or that's basically an ethics board, you know, they um, give us templates for everything that we use. So the consent forms that someone has to sign, we'll probably talk about that later. And then just the protocol that we develop. So within that template, there is just tons of safety information that we have to apply to our project or to Jeremy's scientific idea. Um, so that process takes probably three to six months, mm -hmm. depending. And it's never like, oh, we just write the protocol and they kind of sign off on it. Yeah. There's a constant, you know, back, back and, and forth, forth yeah. where, you know, they ask us to change a bunch of things and we either kind of plead our case as to why we can't do that for this particular research or we say, oh, no, you're right. So, yeah, they are really over multiple different sessions reviewing this protocol yeah. for safety. So... Yeah, and this is how it kind of goes. You get, you know, funded if you're lucky, and then you once you have the money, you get your protocol reviewed. So by the time a patient hears about a study, it's been kind of in the works for years um, to get it kind of reviewed scientifically, to get it reviewed ethically, and then comes where we actually have to come and like find people. And what we do is mostly type one diabetes research, but we do a lot of type two diabetes research also. And so, Todd, how do we how do we get the word out? A and then B. We'll talk about if somebody's listening, how might they find a, a, a protocol that or a study that they want to be involved in? Yeah. So um, we tend to first either focus on those people who've done research with us before, um, and shout out to them. They've been <laughs> great, and they keep coming back, and we really appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> And then our next source is probably from our clinicians, like people who are actually UCSD patients. Um, they just refer them over to us. We kind of describe the study to the, um, the clinicians and say, oh, hey, you have people that might qualify for this. Mention our study. Uh, more recently, we've started um, a patient registry so that um, TCOYD, I know, sends out like the little scan for the QR code mm -hmm. where people can go and just fill out some quick questions um, about themselves so we know which study they might qualify for. So um, kind of finding people from a lot of different places, but yeah. that's how yeah. we do it. And I would say if it, for people that are listening that are interested that, you know, Honestly, like if you live near like a university, like cold calling the, the place and asking for the endocrinology department, you're interested in diabetes research. That's one way that people can kind of find out. Certainly asking your provider, hey, I'm interested in research. Is there somebody that you can refer to me in the area? The more specific you can be, the better. You know, I have type 2 diabetes and I'm looking for a weight loss trial or I have type 1 and I'm looking for a technology study or I'm newly diagnosed with type 1 and I want to preserve my beta cells. All that is really helpful to kind of trying to find the right place. To be honest, there's really lacking. There's There's been lots of attempts to for like centralized, you know, registries to link people up to clinical trials that haven't been that effective. JDRF does have a clinical uh, research kind of finding tool that you can Google and you know you can you can enter in there just get Google kind of JDRF research uh, clinical trials. It'll say you know where you're located, some basic information and it can give you a list of protocols in the area. It doesn't give you all of them but it's certainly a start. Do you have other ideas Todd of how um, people can find things? So clinicaltrials.gov mm -hmm. and clinicaltrials.gov that's the place where we have to register any sort of 
interventional trial that involves human beings. So, and that's anywhere in the country. So every study that a pharmaceutical company does, that a scientist does, that involves people and an intervention has to go on that website. And you can search that, within that website, you can search for location, you can search for, you know, diabetes, you can search for type 2 diabetes, you could even get more granular. They have a bunch of different search options. Um, so that's one great place to go yeah. to. When people use that and they search and they find like our trial, there's usually like a, an email or whatever they're associated. And so at UCSD, we'll get forwarded these things. Hey, these people reached out about this or whatever, and then we can kind of contact them. So that, that is that Todd's cell numbers on there. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be, actually. <laughs> we got rid of that. Yeah, and I think, um, I think it's important to mention maybe at this point um, – why people volunteer yeah. for clinical trials. That's what I was going to ask you. Like, what are the, the benefits? And again, I know you've had a lot of kind of history with this, Steve. So somebody's saying, okay, you know, I'm on the fence. I don't want to be a guinea pig. I'm excited about a new treatment, and that sounds cool, but that also makes me nervous. Like, how do you walk people through? Let's start with the benefits and then maybe, you know, potential downsides. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I think, um, first of all, there, there's no right or wrong reason to want to get involved. So on the altruistic side, people will say, gee, um, I want to volunteer. I'm probably not going to benefit myself from this study, but from the information and the science they collect, it'll help future generations of people. Um, and that's that's very altruistic, and a lot of people will volunteer their time based on that issue alone. Others, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, these studies offer you know, stipends, honorariums, uh, payments, you call it what you like, you know, for to pay them for their time. And there's nothing wrong with that. They pay for travel costs. And some people need the extra money if they're a good candidate for the study. That that might be the incentive that they need. Um, you know. And then there's uh, others who just don't have access to good, let's just say in your unit, diabetes doctors. Mm -hmm. So you know how access is these days, if you're listening. Try to get an appointment with a good diabetes doctor. It's probably six months. But there you can go to Dr. Pettis's lab and and see him and see Dr. Schaefer Bader and Vala and Robert. Uh, and even you have some pretty knowledgeable nurse practitioners working there. And, and you can also, depending on the study, you get free supplies. Like some of them will say you get a CGM. Mm -hmm. You'll get, you know, in the olden days, they gave out finger stickers. You know, who wants those? But in those days, mm -hmm. you know, the glucose strips were really expensive. So I, I think it does, it's a range. Uh, and, if you feel like you want to do it to improve your own health, that's there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. And that you need to find uh, the study that fits what you're looking for because most studies will have a uh, placebo group, which is the group that gets the fake drug or the fake whatever, and you may not benefit from it. But just being in a study um, where you get lots of attention, you get knowledge about that particular product, it's usually always beneficial. Yeah. Todd, what do you think about other benefits? I mean, so Todd is really the one that is seeing every patient. So, so again, my job is kind of like writing the grants, getting, you know, things going, getting, you know, big picture. And Todd's the one, you know, submitting the IRB forms, getting it approved, um, you know, helping recruit patients. And when patients come in, um, actually what we haven't talked about, the first thing you do with them is actually getting like the informed consent um, so maybe talking about that and then, and then a little bit more of the benefits that Steve was talking about. Yeah, the informed consent's important. Yeah. That's, that's a really an official part of your visit when you're showing interest. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned this as part of that IRB review. 
though, that we also have this informed consent form. Um, that's the form that tells, you know, potential participants about everything that happens in the study, literally like kind of every detail that happens in the study. Um, and then it also tells you about like why we're doing the study, the risks involved, maybe any benefits, um, potential payment, what happens with all of the information that we collect. Mm -hmm. So it just really tells you everything about the study. And the whole point of this is that people get to read that and we kind of chat with them about it. They get to ask questions and then they can decide whether they not whether or not they want to do the research. Mm -hmm. So again, research is completely voluntary. Mm -hmm. No one has to do research. Um, and even if you sign up for research at the beginning, you always can drop out anytime you want. Right. So it really is volunteer mm -hmm. sort of thing. Yeah, when, when you tell someone about a study, you want to, I mean, you want to tell them everything about the study so that they don't just drop out halfway through because that causes headaches with data collection and analysis. So the more uh, information someone has, the better. And I, my suggestion to everyone is, you know when you get these legal forms at almost every part of our lives, we just sign it mm -hmm. at the bottom. Well, this is one you want to read. Yeah. <laughs> every line and ask questions uh, and uh, hopefully you'll get the answers you need. Yeah, and these things are usually, I mean, they can be 50 plus pages. I mean, Right? More like, like 20. 20, okay. Yeah. I'm thinking the protocols are yeah, usually a lot Yeah, 50 would be like okay. a lot. And what we try to do is is email it to the patient before they come in for their initial visit so they have time to kind of look over it. And then Todd literally generally reads this line by line to people, going over it, making sure people know that this isn't just something just to sign. And again, if you sign it, you can still drop out. So it's not like we got you. It's like really supposed to be like, here's what's you know happening in the study. So you are informed and you're giving consent for, you know, for doing the study. Um, and then when people enroll, so Steve mentioned a number of benefits. Anything else, Todd, that comes to mind of, of what patients say about why they enjoy it? Yeah. So it's not only like coming in to see us for like medical reasons and or for the money or there is a good like great benefit for, you know, seeing like doctors and medical staff like mm -hmm. more regularly than you would your regular doctor. But then we have a lot of people, quite honestly, that just enjoy spending their time mm -hmm doing something yeah so it's kind of entertainment also mm -hmm. for them um so yeah you get to come in and hang out with us and we're really yeah. fun well i i agree i think to, to be honest that's what our patients would say would be the, the major benefit and why i like clinical research so much is that it's not uncommon for a patient to come in and be there for multiple hours you know at least one but maybe two three four hours if they're doing you know they're eating a meal and we're checking their blood sugars like frequently or something and that creates a really low stress environment to see the patient, to talk to them, which is very different than when I'm in clinic my two days a week when you just feel rushed. You got to do like a hundred things. You know, somebody's knocking on the door to see the next patient. It's not like an ideal way to practice medicine versus in clinical research when someone's there because they're not sick. They're there, you know, they're volunteering their time, but you get to talk about, you know, diabetes. Um, they're getting paid to be there. So it just actually is like a really fun way to see people. And then that brings up that obviously there is this placebo effect. And I think sometimes people think the placebo is really that the, the sugar pill or the, the non-drug is actually doing something. That's not the case. It's just that we're seeing them so frequently, you know, like every week or a couple weeks. Yeah. And, 
And part of our practice, no matter what intervention we're doing, giving a drug, a new device, is we're always trying to maximize their diabetes care, adjusting their insulin, whatever. So it's not uncommon if we have somebody with, like, let's say, type 1 diabetes, that when they're not getting their drug, their A1C will come down by a full percent, you know, because they're just kind of in tune. They're getting kind of checked up. And maybe there's this feeling of I'm being watched, you know, a little bit, or I want to perform a little bit because I know I'm going to be seen next week and the week after that, et cetera. Um, So people um, don't honestly seem that bothered even when they think that they're getting the placebo. And I have to admit, you know, I'm thinking of one study right now where we're using a drug that's pretty clear generally if people are getting or not, they can tell what their blood sugars. But even the people that aren't getting it, this one particular drug is a once a week injection, they keep coming for their appointments. And, you know, like we, it's rare that people drop out of our, our studies. Yeah, very rare. Yeah. And usually it's because they like have to move or something. Yeah. So it's not like because they're getting the drug or not getting the drug or having side effects from the drug. It's, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Jeremy, as you're talking, you know, when you and I are in the regular clinic, it is crazy, rushed, busy. You feel like you never have enough time. And that's one of the reasons I think the sub, the research volunteers like it because they feel rushed when they're in clinic totally. too with us. Yeah. So, and I think uh, depending on the study, we used to have a, uh, uh, we let the patients that were in the study get together, talk about the study. This was like an implantable pump study. So, you know, it was set up for that. And people, I don't know how often, you know, people run into other patients that are volunteering, but I think it's the camaraderie and the nurses, the, uh, you know, yourself, the physicians, it's a nice environment. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, if you don't have a full-time stressful day job and you have the time to volunteer, it is a nice thing, and that's why you guys recruit the same person study after study. Yeah. There is this kind of hump to get over to, like, recruit them the first time. But then after that, you know, we can't get rid of them in a good way, you know, because they understand. Because I think people are kind of nervous when they first come in. But I'd say some other positives are, and this one's kind of a double-edged sword, where you get access to kind of new novel therapies. You know, something that's not available yet. It's not, you know, in your pharmacy, et cetera. Um, that might be really effective. I think that also can make people nervous because it maybe isn't available in pharmacies and hasn't been extensively studied. So you kind of have to, you know, weigh the good with the bad there. Um, and I don't know. That well, what, what you were saying was uh, you're studying something that once the study's over, they have to be taken off it. Yeah. And they're upset because it's not approved by the FDA. And yet. that's when they you know you've got it. something good. You know, when people say, whether it's a device or a drug, like, you know, I'm really sad about going off of this. And that, like, you know, for us as researchers is kind of exciting. And it does make me think when people are done, too, they'll ask, you know, what about the data? And what do you tell people? Like, they'll say, hey, can I see my results? Yeah. So depending on the study, there's different kind of rules about that. But generally speaking, for our studies, they can get as much of, especially the laboratory results, or sometimes we do like metabolic testing, um, again, insulin sensitivity testing, stuff like that. We can give people kind of any results from mm-hmm. that. When it comes down to the full study results, like the final you know, result of the study um, that you mm-hmm. publish and stuff like that, usually 
by then it's so much later from when they right. started their in, even ended the study that we don't get those results out a lot. But again, those are always on clinicaltrials.gov also. Right. So if you looked up the study on clinicaltrials.gov in the beginning, you can go back in the end and find all the results there yeah. for that. So the other thing I wanted to say about this novel drug thing is that there's different types of studies. Not every study is with some new cutting-edge drug. So if that's exciting to you, then yes, you can try the newest, latest, and greatest and try to be like ahead of the curve. There's also studies that we do that are testing kind of the long-term effects of, of known drugs that are approved. And those are great studies if, like you said, Steve, you just don't have access to medications or care, and that's a little bit, quote-unquote, safer, maybe or less risky because we know more about these drugs. And it's more about being in almost like a diabetes program versus kind of, you know, research. So every time you are involved in a clinical trial, it's kind of important to know like what your goals are, what the study is, how long it is. All these things are very different depending on the, the study. I think just for fun, Jeremy, it always gets people's attention. Tell them about the marijuana study. <laughs> See that? Yeah. Um, well, this is a study we're just talking about before we started recording that we're we're testing the effects, and the punchline is the effects of marijuana on people with type 2 diabetes. And the reason for this is that we just don't know what it does. Um, I always Get tell, some high. Yeah. <laughs> it, there's the conclusion. Yep. Well, and maybe. we'll see you How on the next podcast. How much money was this grant for? <laughs> uh, <laughs> those, those are the results. It's just a one-page result. Um, so the point for this, and I, I always tell um people this anecdote is that when you think of people that are kind of chronic marijuana users um, and what they look like, they, they look like shaggy from Scooby-Doo. They're kind of thin, um, you know, looking people, which is odd because we all know that uh, marijuana gives people the munchies. We know that people, when they consume marijuana, they tend to eat more. So there's this paradox that it makes people eat more, but they tend to be thinner. They have actually less diabetes. They have better cholesterol. So there's something going on metabolically that with marijuana that we just don't know. And it is excruciatingly difficult to study marijuana um, because there's so many regulations. I had, I had to get a special DEA license. Um, I have had to go through all the... Todd has had to help me with all, like, just... I was going to say gallons of paperwork. I don't think that's an appropriate measurement of paper. Mountains. But mountains, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're just, you know, after two years of getting this grant, we're about ready to start it. But there's such a gap between how easy it is to get recreationally. You know, we're here in California... There's, there's dispensaries around the corner that we could all buy as much marijuana as we wanted, but I couldn't go get insulin. I couldn't get any other drug. So it's so much, it's so easy to get marijuana and so difficult to study. So I'm excited to see what it does in terms of insulin sensitivity and people's lipid profile, their, their cholesterol, their blood pressure, all these things that we just don't know. So I think that's a, maybe a great example of where research can be really valuable is that here we have something that people are already using. And it's out there, you know, millions and millions it's of people legal are using, in yeah, and like most days. And let's figure out what what it's doing from a, from a physiology and, and metabolic standpoint. So do, so. do they? I'm just kind of curious. Do they smoke it in the lab? Or in front they of smoke you? it. Well, yes. So they're going to be on it for for two weeks, and we actually have a government agency that's growing this marijuana for us, and they're making like 1970s joints that they're sending to us. Do they use zigzags? Yeah, <laughs> so we'll see what their roll technique is, but we'll see. Um, and they smoke it for two weeks, but when they come in for procedures, they actually smoke it in our research lab, and we have special negative pressure rooms that keep the smoke inside the room so it's not like wafting down the hallway and 
you know, getting everybody else high. So you know, people will know that we're doing kind of, you know, special research in these rooms. Yeah, you know, Jeremy, I've never told you this, but Here we I, go. Was, <laughs> I was misdiagnosed as type 1. I'm really a type 2. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you need more subjects yeah. for the study. Well, the last thing I'll say about that study I think is really cool is that this place that's making it for us is also making a placebo that is the cannabis plant but they've extracted just the THC, and the THC is the, the psychoactive component of it. So it still will smell like marijuana, supposedly. It still has all the other things, like CBD that people you know talk about and all the other products of the plant. So it's really studying specifically um, the effects of marijuana versus all the other cannabinoids and things that are on, in cannabis. So this is a scientifically rigorous study that just makes people giggle when they hear about it but you know we're excited to start it's and people else? might giggle while they're in the study <laughs> yeah, yeah. too <laughs> and um, you know i don't think you'll have too much problems recruiting for this study. well we todd had to develop a protocol for how to teach people how to inhale and it was this like this uh four point uh technique do you want to describe it <laughs> 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 Very similar to that, but it's actually a technique that was developed by someone else. I just had to like put it into a protocol, but you basically inhale for 10 seconds, hold for, I think it's 20 seconds. You're going to be really high. Exhale for like five seconds or just exhale, I should say. And then you kind of breathe normally for just 30 seconds and then you do it again. So it's like actually kind of a lot in, you know, within a minute. So. Do you guys serve Doritos during the study? <laughs> Doritos, Cheetos, <laughs> maybe Taco Bell. If you're <laughs> I know we, we're laughing a lot, but you know Jeremy's doing a study and Todd a very formal, research-oriented study on something that's a recreational drug. So mm-hmm. I can't wait to read the results. It'll probably be a while though. And I think you know the point there is that it's literally taken two years because of all the regulatory steps and it, it is much more with marijuana than other drugs but any clinical trial that we do from the time that we get it f- funded to the time we started is at least a year I would say of all the different processes and things like that so um, you know it doesn't mean that things are completely zero risk that's not what we're saying but things have been looked at and scrutinized um, to generally a, like a, a high degree so I would just kind of leave people with if they're interested, it's something to explore for sure. Ask all kinds of questions. Um, we expect lots of questions when people come and do research. Um, and I don't know, Todd, anything you want to leave people with? Well, just I want people to know too that like there's a lot of times where we have like either phone conversations or email conversations with people and then they just decide not to do the research too, which is completely fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, um, contacting anyone about research doesn't mean that you're like, you know, beholden to completing it. Like, yeah, we just red flag those people. We never speak to them. Again. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, people since people are listening to our podcast all over the United States and areas of the world, it every university has a system that I'd say is fairly similar. Mm-hmm. Um, usually a lot very bureaucratic very slow that's why it takes us a long time but there are private research uh, units out there they follow all the rules as well they seem to work a little faster uh, because they don't have a lot of bureaucracy being at a big university so no matter what area you're in and you're interested in getting involved you know there's a lot of different studies you might be interested in one and not interested in the others uh, and you just got to put some feelers out there yeah 
So with that, I just want to say thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to Todd for coming down here um, in our kind of, you know, I see him all the time in the clinical research gallons unit. Of, uh, paper gallons, <laughs> gallons and gallons. There's a lot of ink <laughs> yeah. in a gallon of paper. You know what, I, uh, Todd, I, I know that it takes a certain person, and you are it, and I, I am impressed yeah. to oh, do thanks. that kind of stuff. Thank you very much. He we thinks could. it's 50 pages. That shows how far apart he is <laughs> from the real work. I was trying to just move on from that, Steve. Thank you. <laughs> Anyways, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will catch you on the next one. Thanks so much. <laughs>